This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hello and welcome to the Publicly Challenged Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Oswald, and I hope you join me on my quest for knowledge to become a better public land hunter, angler, and forager. Stick with us and who knows, maybe we will learn something together. All right, so I'm sitting here and I'm talking to Clay Newcomb of Bear Hunting Magazine, and uh, I got some questions for him. So Clay, I'm going to ask you to introduce yourself a little bit first, let people know who you are. I'm sure most people do, but. Yeah, sure, Luke. Yeah, my name's Clay Newcomb. I live in Northwest Arkansas, and you know, first and foremost, I'm a I'm a husband and father of four kids. Um, vocationally, I'm, I'm I'm a publisher. I've I've been in the publishing business now for about seven years, and I've published Bear Hunting Magazine. And uh, Bear Hunting Magazine has been in print for 20 years, and I've had the business for seven years. And, uh, so we, we really try to cover and try to be, you know, give the latest info on all things bear hunting across North America, which bear hunting is a, is pretty unique in that it doesn't take place in just a certain region. It's kind of like whitetails, you know, there's whitetails spread across this vast geographic distribution, but th there's not a whole lot of other animals that are like that, you know, elk or, you know, the, Rocky Mountain West and mountain lions are out there and mule deer in certain regions, but black bear are everywhere, literally from the Atlantic to the Pacific, from just below the Arctic Circle down into old Mexico. I mean, bear distribution is vast and wide and actually is one of the largest geographic distributions of big game animals in North America, second only in natural distribution to the mountain lion. People, a lot of people wouldn't realize that, but the, the mountain lion has the widest natural, you know, pre-European settlement 
they were everywhere. There was not a place that mountain lions weren't. And black bear was second to them. A lot of people would think whitetails would be the most widely distributed, natural, big game animal in North America, but that's not true. So anyway, I say all that to say that because of that vast distribution, bears are hunted in all these different ways. You know, we hunt them with hounds. We have to hunt them with bait in some places and we spot and stalk them. So it's, it's a, it's a unique hunting culture inside the bear world. But anyway, that's what I do, man. No, that I like that. That's, it's pretty interesting to see, you know, that somebody so passionate about bear hunting and myself, I've never, I've kind of toiled around with the idea, but never actually followed through with it or made a decision where to go or what to do. And it's just kind of one of them things. I know there's opportunities out there, but, um, haven't necessarily pursued it yet. I, I know Colorado has got, it seems like an abundance of bears these day, days and offering extra tags with your archery elk tag and stuff like that to try and incentivize getting them. But I kind of want to talk about, um, how you got started into bear hunting and what made you, uh, make the decision to start hunting bears. You know, I lived in like a, a pretty amazing time in Arkansas to be coming of age as a hunter. The, the long, the, the short version of the Arkansas story is that Arkansas was once known as the bear state. We were nationally known in the 1800s as a place for hillbilly bear hunters and market hunters and lots of wild stories coming out of Arkansas that were nationally distributed back in the 1800s for Arkansas being this bear hunters mecca, you know, and bears were market hunted. So it was, it was essentially a place that drew people to hunt bears as, as were other Southern states and, uh, bears were extirpated by basically the 1920s, meaning local extinction. You know, they just weren't here. Habitat loss from landscape level logging, uh, market hunting, all just wiped the bears out. Well, in the 1950s and 60s, the Game and Fish reintroduced bears back into Arkansas, and it ended up being the most successful reintroduction of large carnivores in the world. And that's kind of a big pill to swallow, but it's, it's, it's considered, let me rephrase that. It's considered one of the most successful reintroductions of large carnivores in the world. And by about by the year 2000, about 50 years after the reintroduction, I mean, we had four or 5,000 bears in Arkansas and for the habitat we had, that was a lot of bears. And, uh, so, and that's, you know, and, 2000, I was, you know, 22 years old or 21 years old or something. And, uh, and I feel like bears kind of chose me. I mean, I grew up whitetail hunting and still I'm a passionate whitetail turkey hunter. I mean, we were just kind of your typical Southern hunters that just tried to do it all. I mean, we wanted to be good turkey hunters. We wanted to be good deer hunters, bow hunt, grew up bow hunting. And, uh, then but we we never really bear hunted, but it, it was like it was that 2000 was when they kind of liberalized the bear season in Arkansas, and I killed my first bear in 2001. And at that moment, I I actually walked up to an animal that I'd killed, a bear that I'd killed, and I realized I knew nothing about it. And uh, I described it as as the hunt sort of felt hollow to me, because all the other animals that I'd hunted. I knew a lot about, 
you know. And so it set me on a journey to really learn about Arkansas black bears and, and began to study about them and just was just straight up intrigued with them. I mean, just this majestic beast of an animal that was just so secretive. I'd never seen one, but lived amongst them my whole life. Um, you know, bears are considered the icon of North American wilderness. Bears thrive on unfragmented wilderness. And I kind of began to see almost a metaphorical sense of what bears represented, especially when I saw the conservation aspect of them, of this being the most successful reintroduction of large carnivores in the world. And it was, it was like this amazing animal, this amazing story that was fueled by the motivations of hunters to bring back this animal. And nobody really thought that much about it. I mean, that's the way it appeared here in Arkansas. And I was kind of like, Hey guys, this is kind of a big deal. We've got all, we've got a world-class wildlife resource right here. And, uh, I wasn't the one that said it was the most successful reintroduction in the world. I, I read that from biologist notes and articles and, and nobody that I knew would have even known that. And that blew my mind that here we lived in this state, once known as the bear state and people didn't even know the history. And anyway, I just, I just kind of started talking about it. And long story short, I started the Arkansas black bear association, which was a hunting conservation organization for black bears in the state. And, uh, that's kind of where I got started, I guess, officially inside of bears, even though it was 10 years before that of, of, of hunting and learning about bears. And, uh, and then the black bear association grew into acquiring bear hunting magazine. And, you know, that's kind of how it started. So, when you say that uh, they were uh, they were commercially hunted for the bears, and you know that's what kind of what drove them out of extinction. What were they hunting them for? Was it the furs or the bear grease or oil or? So listen to this, Luke. Of all the big game animals that we harvest today in in hunting, black bears offer more commodities than basically anything. Uh, we use the hides. Well, let me let me answer your question directly. They were selling the hides, they were selling the meat, and they were selling the bear oil. So, so three valuable commodities, um, especially on the frontier. I mean, in the 1800s. I mean, there's a town in Arkansas called Oil Trough, Oil Trough, Arkansas, still called that today, and it got its name from the bear oil that was processed there. It was on the white little town on the White River. They shipped bear oil on the White River down to the Mississippi and then down the Mississippi River to New Orleans. Um, bear oil was a super valuable commodity. They used it for uh, lamp oil, for burning, for fuel, for lights. They used it to preserve leather. They used it as, um, as a lubricant for metal, and they used it for cooking. You can take – I've got a jar of bear oil sitting right here by my computer – and uh, it's been out for six months, just sitting on a windowsill in a sealed jar. That'll stay good for two years at least. And I could take it in my house right now, pour a you know a couple of teaspoons in there, and fry. I could fry fish. I could fry vegetables. I could. I mean, just whatever you want to do, you cook with it. 
You can use it as substitution for shortening and all kind of pastries and bread products and biscuits and different things. So it's a, they ate it, you know. Right. Um, and then and then the hides back in those days, I mean, were super valuable. I mean, you kill a big bear hide. I mean, people literally use that for bedding. I mean, they use bear hides for blankets, for staying warm. I mean, think about the infrastructure of the homes. I mean, until, I mean, heck, even until 1900. And I mean, they didn't start using insulation probably until the 1930s inside a home, you know, like fiberglass insulation and different stuff. I mean, man, these people were just living in wooden shacks. Man, they needed it. They needed warmth. I mean, it was just a valuable thing. So those three things, hide, fat, fur, meat, that, that meat, you know, back before the North American model of wildlife conservation was kind of established and we said, hey, we cannot sell wildlife anymore as a commodity on the free market. Um, before that, you could. And so, man, you kill a 300-pound bear and get two big old bear hams and some bear shoulders and some bear back straps and some bear ribs and some bear bacon off the belly fat. I mean, it was essentially like going out and slaughtering a, a big pig that you'd been raising and could sell it for money. You know, so just a different time. <laughs> right. No, that's pretty cool. I mean, it's it's great that, you know, that we don't do that anymore and don't demolish our resources like we did, you know, with punt guns, doing the commercial duck hunting and things like that, too. Yeah. But um, so I got to ask you, do you have a bear fur coat? Man, I don't. <laughs> I don't. But I, I've actually... I can't say that I have wheels on the idea too hard yet, but I've been looking for the last couple of years for a coat, somebody that can make a coat, like a real live coat. I don't have one though. Cause that's one of the, my chair here in my office though, I do have a, like a, a bear hide draped over the back of this chair that I sit in every day with that. I've cut the, cut the legs off of the, off of a hide and it's just an oval shape out of the kind of the prime part of the hide. And I use that to sit on in my chair. <laughs> That's pretty cool. No, I, I've always wanted, if I ever killed a bear, I always wanted, or maybe even it'd have to be, you know, two bears to make the coat, whatever it would be. But that's one of the things I've always, always wanted. It's pretty much, it's kind of cliche to say it, but from a movie, I was watching that uh, Legends of the Fall movie and I saw the dad had that bear fur coat, came out of the house with it up there in Montana, I think where they were. And, that's pretty cool. <laughs> Dude, you're inspiring me. It's been a while since I thought about a bear coat. But. Yeah, that and like, uh, you know, reading through Mountain Men books and you got, you know, Jeremiah Johnson, one of my all-time favorite movies. And then you got the dude, the Grizz, right? And he's got the grizzly bear fur coat walking around. And he said, dummy, elk don't know how many legs you got when they're walking behind the horse. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, man. Yeah. So, yeah, that always kind of made me want one real bad. But so I kind of want to talk about opportunities and what's out there because a guy like me is not going to really pay an outfitter. I'm not going to, you know, have the resources to spend the time to set up a bait site somewhere. So what would you tell somebody if they wanted to get into bear hunting and do it a DIY type? Yeah, there's a lot of opportunity for DIY bear hunting, probably not that far from where most people would live. And I mean, because of the, there's a lot of places like, let's start with the Southeastern United States. Um, 
North Georgia, Western North Carolina, Eastern Tennessee. Uh, Kentucky now has a limited bear season. Um, that part of the world has great opportunities for public land, do-it-yourself. And we'll call it spot and stalk hunting, even though it's not really spot and stalk because you're, it's not like you're glassing from miles away looking for bears. But no bait, no hounds. Um, North Georgia is probably the prime destination for that kind of stuff just because it's a, they've got a lot of bears, they've got a lot of public land, and they've got a, it's a two-bear state. I mean, you can actually get two bear tags. Um, and uh, that hunt is tough, though. You know, I call that kind of hunting, uh, I call bear hunting in the south, spot and stalk on public land, like in Arkansas, Oklahoma, North Georgia, Tennessee, I call it the sheep hunt of the south. You know, the, the, so like sheep hunting, as we all know, is just like this super difficult hunt. You got to be in good shape. You know, you, you low percentage hunt, especially if you're doing it yourself with a bow. Uh, you know, it's just seen as like the toughest hunt in North America. Well, what I would like to do is take some of the best sheep hunters in the world and turn them loose in the, in North Georgia in the Ozark and Washtenaw Mountains in Arkansas, and say you got six days to kill a bear with your bow, go. And uh, and I think they would probably have less success than they would hunting sheep up in Alaska. And that's uh, <laughs> so we, it's kind of a, you know, it's just, I, I, I think it's true. It's a tough hunt. That's what I'm trying to say. But it's fun and it's doable. It's um, it's all about timing. And the reason success is low is because it's all about timing. If you hit it just right, it can be really good. And it can almost seem easy when mass crop is concentrated in certain places and the bears are concentrated and you can go in and you can, you can find them and you can kill them with a bow even off the ground. And that's fun. But that's rare. It's, you know, I've been hunting a long time and just – Every couple of years, you'll hit it just right. But so there, there's so that's for the southeast. Up north, there's a ton of opportunity. Pennsylvania, New York, um, Vermont, New Hampshire, all those places have good bear seasons. And bears are doing the same thing everywhere in the fall. I mean, they are they are capitalizing on food source, and it's usually hard mast. In the south, it's going to be white oak and red oak acorns that you're looking for. Up in the northeast, it'd probably be beech nuts, um, and you're trying to just you're trying to find where the bears are. Bears leave a ton of sign wherever they're at. They leave scat piles in the fall multiple times per day. They're leaving big data points for the hunter to find and to understand how soon that bear was there and where he was feeding and where he's going. Um, so the 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 northeast would have a ton of public land. I mean, Pennsylvania is one of the best states in the country for bear harvest and for killing big bears. Uh, so is North Carolina. Zoom to the mid-south, Arkansas, Oklahoma, you know, where I'm from. I wouldn't advise anybody to ever come here to bear hunt um, just because this is where I hunt, and so I don't want to. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> uh, uh, Arkansas and Oklahoma offer some great opportunity. 
Oklahoma less than Arkansas. Arkansas has two big national forests, about 2.2 million acres of national forests. And almost all of Arkansas's national forest land is going to be fairly legit bear country. Some places are better than others, but same way. You'd hunt them just the same way as you would in North Georgia, uh, looking for white oak acorns, red oak acorns, looking for bear sign, and then hunting them just like you would deer. Once you find the sign, then you got to go in with the right wind, with the, you know, they, they, they can't know you're there, and hunt them, you know. Uh, you can hunt them off the ground much easier than you can deer. So from there, go to the Rocky Mountain West, and Montana, Idaho, Wyoming, Utah, Colorado, all those states have bear seasons. Some of them have spring bear seasons. And that's more of your classic uh, spot and stalk rifle type hunt. Um, the east, most of that hunting is going to be bow hunting in the early season. But out west, the seasons are more liberal in terms of the type of weapon you can use. So, you know, you can go to Montana anytime during the bear season and use a rifle or a bow. And that's more of the, you know, glassing from high ridges and looking into basins where you can see a long ways. And it's your classic spot and stalk Western hunt where you'd see a bear a mile away and figure out how to get over to him and a uh, ton opportunity. And that's kind of where most people think of when they think of do it yourself bear hunting is Montana, Idaho, Wyoming. And uh, I love it out there. I truly do. I'm going out there again this fall to, to Western Montana to bear hunt. So, yeah, that's kind of it. Well, and Washington and Oregon, great bear hunting states as well. They both have spring seasons. They're a little, some of those places you have to draw. But uh, anyway, a lot of opportunity. And then Canada, all the Canadian provinces, all Canada hunting, though, is outfitted hunting. Like a, a U.S. hunter can't go up there without an outfitter. So, so yeah. with that being said, um, one of the things was, is I think you're kind of defining more of a still hunting type of hunting versus a spot actual spot and stock right if you're talking like down yeah. south and in the yeah yeah uh, you know i i actually i like to call it slip hunting yep. but people call it still hunting yeah <laughs> even though you're not sitting still right yeah yeah so the other thing was is um are most of these states then that you're talking about like say arkansas oklahoma all those are is it an over-the-counter or is it like a draw process Every one of the southeastern states and even up in the no eastern state that I know of has a draw, except for potentially uh, Kentucky has like a very limited season. It's a quota hunt, so they kill like 50 bears. But yeah, Arkansas, Oklahoma, Georgia, Tennessee, North Carolina, West Virginia, Virginia, you just go buy a tag over the counter. I find that pretty interesting because my hunting buddy and I have often talked about or at least one of my hunting buddies, but we've talked about going to Arkansas and doing like a whitetail hunt in the big woods, you know? Oh, no, no. Go to Georgia, man. <laughs> Georgia's way better. But, but I think maybe, maybe I'll look <laughs> into the bear hunting, but yeah, like you said, Georgia, I, no way I'd want to go to Arkansas at all. So <laughs> <laughs> there we go. There we go. No, man, come on down. No, that's the cool thing about, about Arkansas, specifically Arkansas and Georgia and Tennessee, I know for sure, is that you buy like a sportsman's license. And on that sportsman's license, you get a bear tag, deer tags, even turkey tags. 
so you're getting you're getting everything you know so uh so it's pretty good pretty good value so you could come down here try to hunt bear and if you couldn't find bear but you found some deer you could deer hunt you know so that's all included within the price of that non-resident license then huh you know, Arkansas made a change in the three years ago, and to be honest with you, I, I, I need to brush up on it, but I'm quite certain that for 325 bucks, you get deer tags, bear tags, turkey tag, you get everything. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that's I know for sure in Tennessee and in Georgia, that's the way it works too. You get this sportsman's license that covers all your big game hunting. That's pretty cool. I mean, comparatively to an elk hunt, then, I mean, as far as price-wise, you're getting way more bang for your buck going to head to a southern state. For sure. For sure. Yeah. So I got a question about sign then. So like you said, you're looking for either a mass crop or something that in the fall, especially, that they're going to go to for food, or you're looking for fresh sign. Other than that, say you do a spring hunt, what would be the kind of sign or things you're looking for in order to try and get on a bear okay so there's no spring hunting anywhere in the east except for a few tribal areas in maine so in the whole eastern united states the only place you can spring bear hunt is a few reservations native american reservations in maine so let me establish that so all the spring hunting is going to be in the West. And I think there's nine, there's eight states out West that have a spring season. So what you're looking for then is bears are feeding on green vegetation early. That's what they're after. They, they emerge from their dens, you know, let's just say April, sometime in April. And uh, they're, they're trying to find green grass. I mean, that's pretty much the only thing that's there. The, the mass crop hasn't grown at all. There's no berries. There's very few insects. And so you're hunting green in the spring. That's what you're after. Okay. So now I kind of want to transfer a little bit. Now we've got the bear hunting stuff going. You got your flashy mules. Is that something you named or is that like from the Meat Eater podcast episode where the name flashy mule came from? <laughs> You know, I, I I certainly am not the creator of that term. <laughs> I just use it. That's just a that's just a mule term. I mean, like that's just the way we talk about mules. Is that's a flashy one, you know? Just, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, so in the mule world, the getting so like with horses, there's a lot of breeds of horses that have a lot of color. Just every time. I mean, like Appaloosa horse, you breed an Appaloosa stud to Appaloosa mare, you get an Appaloosa colt that, you know, has a lot of different color and it's beautiful. You breed paint horses, you get paint horses. But with mules, for whatever reason, you know, mules are a hybrid cross between a, a, a male horse and female donkey. Uh, no, no, no. <laughs> I got it back, backwards. Yeah. A jack donkey and a mare horse. Well, a lot of times that the way the mule guys said, and I don't know the genetics of it, but that, but that donkey solid color really transfers into the, into the offspring more often than not. So you get a lot of solid colored mules, even if the mare horse is a Appaloosa or, 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 or a colored animal, you know, multicolored animal and more often than not. Now there's plenty of, colored mule. I, when I say colored mules, I mean 
mules that have multiple colors on them. And anyway, but it's just harder to get that out of a mule. And so when one has a lot of color or just is a beautiful animal, outstanding in some way, just, I don't know who started it, but they say it's a flashy one. <laughs> so yeah. when did you decide to become a mulesman or whatever you would call it? What's the term for a guy that? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's I, I didn't grow up. We didn't grow up owning equine animals, but I kind of grew up around horses. Just, you know, not didn't have a ton of experience, but just in rural Arkansas. I mean, I had friends that had horses and we rode horses, but I, I was certainly not uh, an expert or didn't grow up with them and uh, owning them anyway. And uh, I always was intrigued by mules and the kind of the position that they held in Southern culture. Uh, I remember as a young boy, my dad talking about this man in our community that had mules and he plowed his garden with his mules. And there was a local artist that did a rendition of this man with his mules. And I, as a young kid, I just, I, I could tell you what that picture looked like. I was just like, that's cool. And uh, I just always had this thing. I always wanted mules and, and just, you know, it, it was probably only five years ago that just kind of everything in my life lined up where I was able to get some mules and, uh, you know, I had a piece of property I could keep them and, you know, I just, I, I got a mule and I didn't really intend to be a trainer. I, I intended to buy fully broke mules, but fully broke mules are really expensive. And so I ended up getting a green broke mule, which green broke mules are a dime a dozen, which basically means they're, half trained and dangerous <laughs> and i didn't really know that i didn't know much about them but i got a green broke mule and uh had some had some trouble with them you know got thrown off a couple times and and uh scared me a couple times and just i realized i had a dangerous animal and i began to train it and do some different stuff and then I just decided that if I was going to have a really nice finished mule, that probably I was going to have to do it myself. And, uh, you know, it's kind of like when you start working with an animal, sometimes you just get it. You just, it just kind of clicks what it takes, like the input that you give this animal and the output that they give you. And I had a lot of counsel from horse trainers but a lot of it even came from YouTube and I just started watching stuff and studying mule training and read some stuff and then just went out in my pasture and round pen and just started working these mules. And man, I found it to be like almost a life changing experience. And I, I, I don't want to be over dramatic, but it, it's just the truth. Um, I got this totally unbroke young mule and, um, you know, all that you could do to her was put a halter on her and catch her. That's all you could do. And she wouldn't even let me do that when I first got her. I mean, she ran away from me for four days. And anyway, I trained that mule. And today I've probably ridden, I don't know how much I've ridden Izzy, probably over a thousand miles. I really probably have, um, just in the last three years, I mean, we've ridden a lot and, um, 
it's a neat experience riding on an animal that at one time was like a wild animal. And then now you're, you're partnering with this animal to, to hunt and to ride and you're trusting your life with it. Every time you get on its back, you're trusting your life with that animal into that animal's hands, you know, but, uh, so it's, yeah, it's just a neat experience. And I, I really love mules. So how long did it take before you could like shoot off of their back or something like that? I mean, did it take a lot of breaking or, you know, so I, I took Izzy from hardly being able to catch her to riding her in about six weeks. And then I didn't shoot off her back till probably a year and a half after that. And, uh, and it, it, it looks kind of wild when you see somebody do that, but, I was about 90% sure that everything would be okay when I shot off her back because I, I, I prepped her for that moment. What I would do is I would, I would feed the mules and I would walk out there with my 22 and start out about 50 yards from them and just shoot it into the ground. Just pow, pow while they're eating. So there's something really positive. I mean, a mule would sell his soul for a handful of grain. I mean, that's like their, I mean, any livestock animal would like, you know, so this is like their high time, you know, I mean, they're, they're content and happy and boom, 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 shoot 50 yards away. Well, you just gradually start getting closer to them till two days later, you're standing within two feet of them shooting into the ground with a 22 while they're eating. And, you know, she didn't even flinch. Well, progressed to a 410 shotgun which is about three times as loud as a 22 you do the same thing boom 50 yards away boom 10 yards away and pretty soon you're standing within arm's reach over boom shooting a 410 shotgun while she's eating and she doesn't even care and then so you go squirrel hunting you shoot a couple squirrels out boom 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 you're on the back of the mule now. So it's the first time she's heard gunshots while you're on her back. You know, people shooting on the ground at squirrels. That's what I'm talking about. And then, you know, you just shoot off her back. It's no big deal. So I kind of want to ask you about that then. At what point did you decide that, hey, I'm going to go squirrel hunting, but I'm going to ride my mule and go squirrel hunting. That's something I've never seen before. That's a pretty common thing. I mean, that's... Yeah, that's the thing that people do in the South, you know. I mean, squirrel hunting, the idea is that you're just going to cover a lot of ground. Squirrels are pretty, uh, especially in the late winter, squirrels are not evenly distributed across the landscape. So you'll find pockets of squirrels where you find mass crop. And uh, so sometimes you got to cover a lot of ground. I mean, you you know, so... Just hop on your mule, let your dogs hunt, and you you know, we'll ride seven, eight miles in a afternoon squirrel hunting. And you know, I enjoy walking and I mean and, and I would have enjoyed that if I'd have been on foot. But you know, I hunt with some guys that are in their fifties and and uh, even sixties and uh you know, they're just not gonna be as apt to do that, but they'll jump on the back of a good mule and just ride all day. We're actually going this weekend on a big squirrel mule hunt um and uh we're gonna hunt for two days down in washtals and uh, there's four or five of us bringing mules and dogs and 
it's just a lot of fun. Is that a pretty rugged terrain there then in the Washtaws? You know, it's about, I mean, for, for anything around here, it is, I mean, it's not comparable to like Idaho or Montana or something. And it's, but, but it's, it's, Heck, it's not really even. It's it's about half of what the Southern Appalachians are, um, but it is, it is rough country. I mean, steep and rough, but not super tall. Our highest mountains are about three thousand feet, so the highest mountains in the Southern Appalachians would be about six thousand feet. But our mountains are as rough and rugged as theirs, just not as tall. If I could put it that way. And they run opposite direction right is that uh, um man you've been paying attention uh, <laughs> the washita's the washita's are the only mountain range between the appalachians and the rockies that run east and west uh, so it's it's you know most of our mountain ranges run east and west in north america and uh yeah so the washita's run east and west now the ozarks don't the ozarks are totally irregular the Ozarks were formed by erosion of an uplifted plateau. So, I mean, like, the mountains are just totally irregular. But down the Washita's, if you look at a topographic map, it's almost like the furrows of a farmer's field. These big, long, east-west running ridges and mountains. So it's, it creates a different, a different kind of terrain features with different kind of plants that grow on the southern warmer sides or the northern messick is what they call it like uh the the northern sides that have more moisture hold more moisture in the soil get less sun so yeah so when you were doing all these hunts before you had the mules i mean you were going in however deep you were in the we'll call it the back country and uh packing all these bears out or what what was the plan back then yeah you know the truth is it it, it saddens me to say this every time I say it, but it's just the truth. I mean, we don't have the back country that the West does, you know, I mean, you can't, there's, there's nowhere in Arkansas where you can get five miles from a road. There's just not. Um, and, uh, so you can do anything you want on foot in the, in this part of the world, but it's just, I'm not even going to say it's easier on a mule. You know, a mule or any kind of equine animal adds a massive layer of complexity to your hunting that wasn't there before. You got to love it in order to make it worth it. But if you love it and you really learn to use the animal in an efficient way, it'll help you and make you more successful. But most people would hate it. I mean, it's just, it's work. <laughs> I mean, like for me to think about just like grabbing my bow and my backpack and jumping in the truck and going hunting. I mean, I'm like, wow, that sounds easy. You know, if you got a mule, you you're hooking up your trailer, you're catching the mule, you're grabbing your feed, you're saddling the animal, you're, you know, you're, you're just it's, it's just a late. You know, when you hunt, you're constantly thinking about. You know, you got your animal tied while you go hunt, and you're thinking, is it going to be there when I get back? Did a bear come by and spook it and it break its lead rope and that animal is who knows where. You know, I mean, just like, <laughs> you, you know, you think about getting hurt. I mean, uh, you know, my daughter got hurt um, two years ago on a mule in the backcountry. 
I, I don't really think about it much just because I choose not to, but you know, it's a, it's a liability riding in real rough country by yourself way in the back country. I mean, anything could happen even on a good animal. I mean, anything could happen at any time. And so, you know, in some ways it's a liability, but I, I, I just like to hunt that way. I just like it. And so I've just said, this is the way I'm going to hunt, you know? So one of the other things I wanted to ask you about is I saw you recently did a pheasant hunt with, yeah. was it your recurve or longbow? I don't quite remember, yeah, but recurve, recurve. Now, have you completely switched over to a recurve from a longbow? Uh, not really. My, I had a longbow, uh, my longbow, I had an issue with my longbow. Let me put it that way. And so I don't have my longbow right now. It, I, it got real hot at a camp in Canada and delaminated. So anyway, I've been shooting this uh, recurve for the last couple of years. And uh, and I really like it. It's a Timber Ghost G3SS recurve. Um, but uh, I actually like the, my longbow probably better for no other reason. I just, for whatever reason, enjoy it. But uh, I feel it's a little bit like I... I used to shoot traditional a little bit. Well, actually a couple of years and then I kind of switched back, but mostly cause I just didn't have time to do put in the work that I needed for it versus your modern conveniences of, you know, compounds and whatnot. But, um, I found it was way more forgiving for me, yeah. you know, my style of shooting and you could turn, you could cock it sideways if you wanted and try doing that with the recurve, but just yeah. one of those things. So, um, I saw you actually went on the pheasant hunt. And how many did you actually get on that trip out of how many? Well, I, I only hit, I hit two out of 35 shots. Uh, one of them we didn't show because it wasn't, it, it, it was one I was shooting at on the ground, which, you know, I didn't have a problem with, but you know, wing shooting, you know, you're kind of not supposed to shoot them on the ground. It's legal, but you know, it's wing shoot, but, uh, and, so it was it was a ton of fun. It was kind of just one of those deals we were like, hey, let's go try this. And I I felt like that I could hit one bird. I actually felt like if I had 20 shots, I could hit one. And I was wrong. Um, actually, you know, and I guess it was close to the right, two or 35. So maybe I was close to being right in my estimation. But it was harder. I, w I would say it was harder than I thought it would be. But what... The problem was, is, is the bird that I did hit in the air, I mean, it was just like a, I mean, a total body shot. I mean, it wasn't like just a clip in the animal. And uh, the arrow just literally bounced off the pheasant. It, it just didn't kill it. Um, and I was using the guillotine turkey broadheads, those big broadheads that have three big blades that stick off of them. And uh, golly... I just don't know. I, I hit two pheasants just square in the feathers, and they just bounced off in the pheasant. It didn't even hurt the pheasant. I wonder so, if uh, if it should have been something more like a big, big like blunt brass point or something like that, where uh, you know it would have had more impact on the body of the pheasant. You know, I if I do it again, I'm just going to use a regular broadhead. I just I just want it to penetrate the the pheasant you know and actually stick in it yeah uh, i've got a buddy um i've got a buddy that 
used to go to South Dakota every year and do pheasant hunts. And finally he got the idea in his head that he was going to shoot a pheasant with his longbow. And so we practiced and I practiced with him, and I was not as good of a shot as him, but we started out with like a two inch thick felt pad and we cut a bunch of circles that were like probably 12, 14 inch circles and we'd throw them in the air and try shooting at them. Yeah. And eventually we cut them down and we cut them down in about eight inch circles. And then we cut them down into six inch circles and I started throwing them up. And I bet you by the end of that summer, he was hitting dang near every single one I'd throw up. And he's like, all right, I'm ready to go. So he we went out there, South Dakota, and did his regular hunt so we wouldn't ruin the whole hunt by having, you know, because he wanted to bring home birds if you're paying an outfitter, right? So yeah. uh, I think he did the first two days with a shotgun and limited out the first two days. And he said he had about 20 18 to 20 shots on birds and he ended up getting two of them with the longbow. So that's pretty cool. Really? Okay. So that's a good practice. And if, and, uh, I'm pretty sure he had, I don't know if, have you ever seen that techno hunt where you you shoot the video screen with your, with with your bow and they give you these special arrow tips and they're reflective. Yes. I believe it's three rivers. Archery actually makes them and they're brass ones with the reflective on the backside of the brass. And I think he might have used those and hit them, and it was such a lethal impact on that bird, it just knocked its ass right out of there. So, really? Yeah. Huh. Yeah, that's good to hear. That's good to hear. Yeah, yeah there are guys that do it. I, I don't know enough. I mean, you know, obviously you see Tim Wells and stuff, you know, shooting birds out of the air, and, and he he's incredible. I mean, he's, he's a super gift. He's just incredible. Uh, but I will tell you, they don't show all Tim Wells misses. I promise <laughs> you, sure. he misses a lot. He misses a lot. You just can't hit every one of those birds you shoot at. Right. I think what got us going on the whole thing is we were watching the old Fred Bear videos, which are amazing. If nobody's ever, if anybody's listening and they've never seen them, find them, buy them, and watch them because they are some of the most amazing things you've ever seen somebody do. And to see a pioneer of the primitive world you know doing all that stuff or i guess it was probably modern tackle back then but it's pretty cool and he had an episode where they went to a farm and did that and i think that's what got us really reeling on the idea the whole pheasant. did fred hit some he did he did he missed i mean they showed the misses he missed quite a few too but i think they ended up walking away with two birds and I, i can't remember who he was hunting with and then the farmer they gave him the the bow and let him shoot too and he could he, he didn't hit nothing with it, but it yeah. was pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. That's cool. That's cool. That's a fun experience. I'd like to try again. Uh, I I feel like, uh, well, I, I could be better prepared next time. I, I feel like we didn't, I, I didn't, we practiced very little with flying targets. I, my son and I got out there with a coffee can about two days before we hunted and he was just throwing a coffee can up in the air and I was shooting it. And, uh, that was pretty much the extent of the practice that I did for it. And, uh, I, you know, I'm certain if you got used to shooting it, you'd probably be a little more proficient, but it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. So if you go back and you do it, then you're going to have to go the second time after you get more birds, you're going to have to take that mule and try and do it off the back of the mule. (laughs) Yeah. Hey, you can totally do that. Now that <laughs> might be an advantage to you being up high like that. I don't know. Uh, 
Well, I kind of asked you all the questions about uh, everything. Is uh, Where can people find you? So, yeah, on social media, two places. Everything that personally I'm doing, you know, just Clay Newcomb on Instagram, clay.newcomb on Instagram and Clay Newcomb on Facebook. And then Bear Hunting Magazine on Facebook, Instagram, and our podcast. Uh, we, you know, we have a Bear Hunting Magazine podcast. Um, so, yeah, people can find me through those two brands, just Clay Newcomb and or those two names, Clay Newcomb and Bear Hunting Magazine. What uh, what big plans you got for this year coming up? Only thing that's for sure happening, or you know, at least planning to happen, is uh, going to Montana this spring, and then going to Saskatchewan, so two spring bear hunts, and then you know, I'll do my regular fall stuff hunting Arkansas, Oklahoma, and, and then probably go to Manitoba on a whitetail hunt. That's all I've got planned right now, but maybe some more. I may go back to Colorado on a do-it-yourself elk hunt. We'll see. What are you going to bring, a rifle or a, a bow? On oh, which one, the elk hunt? Yeah. Bow, bow, bow. and probably compound. I, you know, I'm not, I, I, I like to be flexible. And so, I, you know, certain hunts I'll choose the compound just because I don't want the shooting to be the limiting factor of the hunt, you know. So uh, I'm not ready for traditional elk hunting yet. I need to just kill one. Would be cool though. That's like my ultimate dream is to get back into shooting the traditional and do that. But I got to get one with the bow first. So yeah. 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 Well, Clay, I appreciate you talking to me and uh, thank you so much. Hey, thanks for having me on Luke. Appreciate it, man. Yep. Thank you. Once again, thank you so much for listening to the Publicly Challenged podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show, and if you did, please subscribe on whatever platform it is you're listening to. Also, if you could leave a review, that would help us out. And you can check us out on Instagram or at publiclychallenged.com. And once again, thank you so much for listening to the show. Miss Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors, every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. I'm Will Cooper, host of Hunt Stand's Make Your Mark podcast. If you haven't already, download the free Waypoint TV app to listen to our podcast and watch the original films from Hunt Stand Presents anywhere, anytime, and on any device.